Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It's interesting in the current national campaign when the conversation rarely does turn to real economic issues. It's usually about numbers, growth, GDP, home ownership, and of course the ongoing and too slow recovery from the Great Recession of 2008-2009. What we often overlook is the impact of those numbers on real people. Not those at the bottom, not those left behind, but those struggling to maintain a middle-class life. The psychological impact it has on families, marriages, children, and the way it often completely alters the trajectory of lives. There's a real estate website that advertises with the slogan, What does home mean to you? The most obvious meaning, of course, is a physical location, where you live. But home is so much more than just a warm bed or a comfy couch. It's come to represent love, security, connection. It isn't just a place. It's really about life. And these two ideas, the meaning of home, the impact of the economy, lie at the heart of Joe McGinnis Jr.'s second novel, Carousel Court. It is my pleasure to welcome Joe McGinnis Jr. back to this program to talk about Carousel Court. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, This is a pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's just so beautifully put. Thank you. It's great to have you back. You know, it used to be years ago, people would joke about Hollywood and and say, you know, everybody's in two businesses. They're in their own business and show business. Nowadays, sometimes it feels like the two business everybody is in is whatever it is they do and real estate. They're always talking about houses, about real estate. And and that really is is sort of at the core of, of some of what you write about. That's absolutely right. Uh, it, as you said so eloquently, it is, it's come to symbolize so much in our American psyche. It just, it means it's sort of the, in many ways, the, the end goal uh, of so many, especially young couples just starting out is all about establishing uh, those roots and, and, and naturally because they want to grow their family and grow their lives and, and have that, stability beneath them and I just um I'm supporting everything they do and when that, when that is threatened or in this case stripped out from underneath uh so violently uh the young married couples and the established middle class couples who have who thought they had that stability are rocked to their core and what they do in the face of that is I just utterly in the greatest challenge outside of health issues that you could imagine for a family. And I just, uh, it's an irresistible topic to explore and something that unfortunately for too many has become an irresistible, um, pursuit, uh, in terms of grabbing that piece of the American dream and, and using house as, as sort of the end all be all. Um, in many ways, yeah. it, it, it is the be-all and end-all because we, given that we live in a consumer-driven society, the house then becomes the ultimate possession. It really is the apogee of everything that is part of our consumer society. Yeah, you look at people who uh, – I, I noticed this where I live in northwest D.C. A lot of folks come in, uh, especially young folks, and we, we lived in a, in a condo, a very nice little – community in a condo in Northwest DC. And we were renting there starting out. Uh, na- young neighbors were moving in, just starting their family with their first child being a dog and then yeah, going from there. 
but they bought their places. And, and my wife and I at the time, we were hardworking, you know, we were happy with our education and all that. And we just wondered, God, how do these folks do it? They're our age, if not younger, and they own these condos. And a lot of things are bequeathed. I mean, they, the families are buying them. In fact, we're selling our condo that we eventually bought now. And the very nice young woman who's going to be living there, it is a gift from her hardworking parents who could afford to buy her this piece of, you know, God, now she's got this foundation and she can always just sell it. And whatever she sells it for is profit. She didn't put anything out for it. Now that's wonderful for a little sliver of the American population, but most people don't start out that way. They don't have that safety net and everything they have is invested in that one home. And so a lot more is at stake for so many more people uh, than the lucky, fortunate few. And, man, it's, it's a tough situation to find yourself in when it falls out. And, of course, falls out. when something that big starts to fall apart, as it does for your couple in, in Carousel Court, the, the power that it has is it brings up, by connection, every single other problem that they face. Absolutely. If... You know, in so many ways, at least with this story, but I think it, it's, it's universal at some level as well. There's a, uh, a lot of couples reach a point where perhaps the, the energy and the passion they had when they started together in that sense that, okay, together we're going to be stronger than we were as individuals and we've got all these dreams and goals and aspirations. And they launch themselves and they have so much optimism. And at a certain point, maybe that starts to peter out a little bit. If the realities of life set in, you have to pay bills. You have, maybe are lucky enough to have a healthy child that takes up a lot of energy and time. And suddenly you're not traveling the world or conquering the world, but you, you know, maybe it, then you can buy a house at least. And then that's going to be this amazing investment. That's going to be paying off for generations. And, and it, we sort of reduce, Maybe it were limited, are limiting our vision and getting more realistic. But then even, when even that is threatened, there's, it, it, it suddenly exposes what may be sort of at the core of the relationship that was never necessarily resolved. Or maybe they didn't figure out, okay, how do we adjust to our new selves together? Maybe we didn't conquer the world. Now we're going to look at each other and say, well, huh. Why didn't you do it? Why didn't you live out your dream and, and get this going? Why didn't you do it? And it really can test a couple and their, and their commitment to each other and who they're becoming. Right. So I think it's a, it, it, it does expose a lot of issues in a couple in, in the marriage that may have been, you've been maybe able to cover up or avoid for some, some time. Because part of what the house represents too, I mean, it represents the present where all this is certainly going on, but it also has this representation as somehow the future. And and that's the other power that it has, I think. Exactly. I mean, the future, I mean, what, what, what's the vision, right? I mean, are we talking about the, the married couple who buys their house and then are they're, they're looking down the road in terms of their own individual future, in terms of what that house will be for them, uh, children and stability and uh, maybe something they can pass on. Um, and I, look, I was lucky enough. My mother was a nurse and she raised my sisters and I 
um, in a house uh, in a very nice little college town, right? <laughs> with a turnpike in the backyard. So we had sort of a, a nice mix of elements there. But my God, there was never a day where we thought this house could be ripped out from under us. She had a steady job. We had alimony checks coming in once a month until we turned 18. And we knew, we, were, we didn't even think about it, to be honest. We didn't have to know. We just assumed, oh, house is home. It's never going away. I, I, I think that might be for too many Americans now, uh, especially kids and younger people, a notion that they can't just take for granted. I think that's shifting. That's changing now. The other thing that we see changing now, and I couldn't help but think about this in in looking at Carousel Court, is that we have so many millennials now that really don't have that same burning desire for home ownership. I mean, they might do it eventually, but it's not the same kind of compelling imperative that it was for previous generations. You know, that's a great point. And I actually uh, give credit where it's due to the millennials for having a broader vision of things. I think, uh, at least with my mother's generation, the boomers, and I think even some folks after that, um, there was, uh, we were all sold a bill of goods and it, and it, it, for a good reason, but, you know, buy the house and you're set. And that's property values rose and rose and rose until finally it burst, but they never stopped rising. Property was the one thing you knew you could count on. Millennials, look, they're, they're connected in ways to the world that, my mother, and even I as growing up, certainly wasn't. They have access to the world. They don't want necessarily they're to settle down in Levittown, PA, and just be like, <laughs> hey, here I am for the next 50 years until I retire and you know, kick back in my lazy boy. They, they have the whole world. They don't want to be tied down. And I think that sort of freedom and openness is, is refreshing. I, mean, I think it's wonderful. It's interesting to think about your couple that the the Maguires that are at the heart of this story, and think about their lives if they hadn't been tied down by a house, if they had been you know renters, and and how different things might or might not have been. You know, <laughs> I think that is what Nick is uh, <laughs> asking himself throughout this book, um, because I feel like again it, the, the the leap was made to compensate for so much more. And I think there's a psychological element to it that, that, that compels people to make these decisions, uh, especially at that point when everybody was getting rich. I mean, you didn't have to do anything but sign a document. You literally had to put no money down. Right. And you knew that in a year, you'd make hundred or $200,000 just by selling that house. They never intended to live in this house. It was an investment property. They were going to rent on the beach. Phoebe was, is going to get a few months off to relax and recover from a really tough spell with work and uh, her son. And at the end, you know, what do we have? We had this, <laughs> they're living at ground zero of the worst mortgage catastrophe in history. And, um, you know, they've got to, they've got to be questioning themselves like, wow, had we just stayed in Boston and rented that apartment a little longer, uh, we could have ridden this out or avoided this altogether. And, um, but at the same time, there's a resilience, not only to Nick and Phoebe, but I think to, to so many people. I mean, I interviewed a couple in Lake Elsinore who took it on the chin with this. They, they went all in. These are 
you know, I worked in a garage and, and, and she was a stay at home mom and they were, they did not come from money, but they were in a position to really cash in. They put it all on the line and they lost $300,000 and they short sold. And just, as he said, in the end, when I talked to him, I asked him how he felt and you know how it went. And he just said, we lost. The other thing that's so interesting about it is that it reminds you, particularly in the, in the crucible of the relationship, that a lot of times it's inertia that keeps driving these things forward. And when something changes in terms of your living environment, particularly with your house, with your home, and you have to move or you have to sell or the bottom falls out, it, it's an opportunity both good and bad, to start over. It really makes you question the underlying assumptions in ways that you never would if the inertia just kept on with you. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, the inertia in the relationship compelled them to take this leap. They understood this was a great opportunity, and that yet at the same time when they find themselves uh, in a rather tough spot to be diplomatic, um, they are seeing so many different paths forward and so many new opportunities for, again, at least something noble, I think, in salvaging that thread, that, that shred of what drew them together and held them together from the beginning. So in the end, they may take some questionable paths toward salvaging what they have, but it's for, it's for the, they have the best intentions. They, they know what they have in their son, in this young family, and they don't want to quit on it. Um, so they definitely have an opportunity here that they didn't anticipate and they are not grateful for, but it's an opportunity nonetheless, and they're seizing it. We should also talk about the fact that you, and, and I'm curious about, your decision to set this in Los Angeles and essentially the real estate capital of America. The city fascinates me. Okay. I, I, I spent a little bit of time there. Um, when my wife was out there working at the time, that's what I proposed to her at Hermosa beach. I have a, a, an affinity for Los Angeles, but I also feel like there's just too much going on there around the city and in, in, uh, in the inland empire and, as a creative person, it's irresistible because you've got the geography of it and and, and the elements and the and the the natural world that is just so uh, compelling and, and tonally available for so much you can do in, in the setting with the winds and the fires and the threats and the earthquakes. But also, it was ground zero for this foreclosure crisis, for the mortgage crisis. That was foreclosure alley. I mean, that's what, that's the heart of it. And how can you not go to the heart of it? If I'm going to write a story about uh, Hurricane Katrina, I'm going to set <laughs> it probably in New Orleans, you know, 9-11, likely New York. Uh, for the, the mortgage crisis, it had to be there. There is something about Los Angeles. I mean, uh, certainly Florida was another place where a lot of this took place, but there is something about yeah. Los Angeles, that, that kind of day of the locust quality that it has, that, that it still has, particularly in, in, in a crisis like this. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Florida, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think, look, I was selfish in that I, I, 
I wanted to write about a place that I love and that fascinates me. Florida, God bless them. But I just, I don't have a lot. I don't really want to, not a lot to say about Florida that I wouldn't want to spend a lot of time in, in, in Florida fictionally, uh, you know. <laughs> so that was selfish on my part. <laughs> As you said a little while ago, certainly during this period of time, everybody thought it would just go up and up and up and that particularly California real estate that did it no no bounds at all. And nobody ever thought about it as they do oftentimes with the stock market is a zero sum game that if somebody's selling, somebody else has to be buying. If somebody maybe is winning, somebody else has to be losing. That never entered into the equation. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I think, I think there's a, maybe just an element that I'm probably guilty of. Uh, and I think a lot of folks in thirties, forties, fifties, you know, they can look back and they just know from growing up that this is rock solid. This is always going to, it's always going to appreciate in value the house. Um, we've, we, we've never had this kind of, since the depression, uh, this kind of bottom falling out. I mean, the stock market has crashed, recovered, crashed, recovered. But when we're talking about homes, I mean, it just makes sense. I mean, why are these folks building all these new construction homes and all this, these companies, you know, expanding home after home, if it's not just going to get better and better. So people need a place to live. I mean, I just think instinctively, there's no reason to question it. There was never a reason to question it. And I think the people who sold families on it, uh, I think they knew, but didn't care because they were getting what they needed to get. These companies, these predatory lenders, everybody was getting what they needed to get. People committed to these houses, to these mortgages. Uh, they knew if we, from the big short, they knew in, in this case that this was going to blow. But the average fo- person, myself, other folks, uh, no reason to think that it just won't keep appreciating. Coming back to, to kind of where we started, Joe, the, the, the psychological impact that it had on people, and in fact, how many marriages went on the rocks as a result of this? How many lives were set on different trajectories that uh, they never recovered from? Certainly, you know, you look at mm. California real estate today, and it's easy to say that, you know, it's almost recovered to its pre-recession levels, but a lot of those lives certainly have not recovered. Exactly. I mean, the I'm just thinking about this now and thought about it obviously throughout writing the novel, the overwhelming sense of helplessness and how dispiriting and just soul crushing it is. And it was for these, these people uh, to have, I mean, look, not to put, I don't know, maybe this is a reach, but I, my father passed away a couple of years ago and he, he, uh, had cancer and, um, we knew and he knew and everything was done that could be done. But as his children and his family, we, the feeling of helplessness and knowing that there's nothing we can do for all we, as as much as we wanted to do everything in the world to get him healthy, the feeling of helplessness was just to this day is just, uh, you know, it's crushing and, and it's so hard to recover from. And in some ways, these families and these marriages, this is that 
disease that they can't they can't combat they can't do anything about and it has absolutely devastated them and you know i think many would say not to put use the cliche but at least we have our health and maybe they have their physical health at the end of this but emotionally and mentally yeah um they they may not be uh recovered yet and it may take a little bit of time um but they will because there is a resilience in people and that's what this story uh expresses uh, a resilience that is uh inspiring i i think Joe McGinnis Jr., his novel is Carousel Court. Joe, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for talking. This, is, this has been wonderful. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 